Good morning. Never waste a crisis. That's a phrase that we often hear from politicians, political theory. Um, politicians see the danger in certain circumstances, but they also see the opportunity that those circumstances present to help them advance a cause or get something done. Never waste a crisis. Well, it's true that crises do present dangers, and they do present opportunities. And so there's a more benign way, I think, to understand or employ this phrase, never waste a crisis. And that, for Christians, is to make sure that when we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis, we are seeking God in it. And we are figuring out, if we can, uh, where God is in it and what God is trying to say to us through it, what he is that he wants to teach us. I know that these last few weeks have been very difficult. They've been harder on some than on others. But I also know this, that God is with us. And I also know that God intends to speak to his people through this. And I pray that we would all be willing to listen for him. That we would see the opportunity in front of us these days to actually be quiet and to get before the Lord. I want to encourage you to read your word. I want to encourage you to pray and to meditate. And I want to encourage you this morning to take occasion when you can to listen for the Lord. Be careful that you aren't quick to fill your life up with new and different distractions. Be careful that you don't substitute one form of frenetic busyness with another. It is not um, critical or mandatory that you fill every void in your life that is left there because of this pandemic or because of our responses to it. It's okay to be quiet. It's okay to be still. It's okay to be a little less productive maybe than what you're comfortable being, I'm afraid that if we're not quiet and if we're not still and that if we do substitute one form of busyness for another, then we may just waste this crisis. I think it was in our Sunday school class on how our phones are changing us a little while ago that we stumbled across this quotation from 17th century mathematician philosopher Blaise Pascal who remarked, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. Without question, this quarantine is creating in us a longing, a desire, an appreciation um, for human fellowship, for contact. That's a good thing. That's a good change in some of us. But I want to suggest it's not a bad thing that we learn to sit in a quiet room alone, that we learn to sit with ourselves for a while, and we're never really just by ourselves, are we? It's always us and God. We would have called such a thing a luxury about a month ago. Now we're calling it a curse. And I'm wondering if maybe it isn't a gift. I want to encourage you to keep facing this struggle with confidence and with faith knowing that if this is something that God is causing, he's causing it for a reason. If this is something that God is allowing, he's allowing it for a purpose. 
And if this is something that our enemy is doing, then our great God is going to redeem it for our good. In a recent edition of Christianity Today, author and pastor Greg Laurie wrote, I think we finally are beginning to realize we need God. <laughs> I hope he's right. Now on to the message. What messes us up most in life is the picture in our head of how it's supposed to be. That's a cleaned up version of a quote from the famous author Anonymous, speaking to the power of unmet expectations. It is attributed to William Shakespeare, though there's no evidence whatsoever that he said it. It's on the internet, though it must be true. Expectation is the root of all heartache. The reason such a suspect quote lives, I think, is because the heartache of unmet expectations is a universal human experience. When we have it in our minds how something is supposed to go, what it is uh, going to look like, what it will accomplish, and then the vision that's in our head doesn't come to pass, it can be deeply disappointing. Jesus knew that about his disciples. Jesus knows that about us. And so he made it his practice while on earth to equip his followers with right expectations that were grounded in truth. Now that is not always to say that they listened, that they heard what he had to say, or even that they acted on it. But it is to say that Jesus always did and continues to do his job of teaching while we may or may not continue to do our job of listening. And that's what Jesus is doing here this morning in the parable of the weeds. He's teaching. He's teaching his disciples about the kingdom that he is inaugurating. It wasn't going to be what people thought it was going to be. It wasn't going to quite look the way that some people thought it should look. If you received uh, and are following our order of worship for today, then you probably have already read the scripture for this morning. And if you didn't, or if you haven't, then I would ask you to take a moment now to pause and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 and read through verses 24 to 30. That's Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. The parable in front of us this morning is a story of bioterrorism. A man sows good seed in his field, and he expects to get a good crop from it. But during the night, someone who wants to sabotage his work comes and sows bad seeds to be mixed in with the good ones. And what the enemy has done isn't quickly discernible. It isn't noticeable. It takes time for the seeds to grow. And in the beginning, they all look the same. So it just looks like this good crop that's coming up. But eventually, the weeds are noticed. And the farmer's servants question him. They say, didn't you sow good seed? How come your field is full of weeds? Where did all these weeds come from? That's the question we ask, I think, consciously or subconsciously, about the evil in the world. God, if you're in control, God, if you're, if you're doing your good work here in this world and you say that you love this world, where'd all these weeds come from? Where's all this nastiness coming from? So the servants offer to pull up the weeds, but the farmer says, no, let them grow. Let them grow together and we'll separate them at harvest time. 
And then the weeds will be bound and they will be burned and the wheat will be gathered into the barn. So that's the parable of the weeds. What does the parable mean? What's it about? Well, the good news for us is this is another one of those parables, only a couple in the Bible, where we don't have to wonder what this is about because Jesus' disciples didn't understand it themselves, and they asked him to explain it, which he did. So again, if you look in Matthew 13 this time, in verses 37 to 43, we'll find Jesus' explanation. So Matthew 13, verses 37 to 43. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So that's Jesus' explanation of the parable of the weeds. The farmer, the one who sows, is Jesus himself, the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of God, the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the devil. The enemy is the devil himself. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters, the reapers, are the angels. So those are the actors. That's the explanation. But still we have to ask, what's his point? What what does this parable mean? What is Jesus trying to get across to us? Well, Scripture interprets Scripture, right? We've gone over that many times, so we know from verse 24 that Jesus is telling this parable so that his hearers will understand a little bit about what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of God on earth, is going to look like. He's telling his disciples what to anticipate. He's telling them what they can expect which is a kingdom in conflict, which is a kingdom with weeds in it. Jesus is putting his disciples on notice here that they should not expect to see in this present world the pure and perfect condition that will characterize the world which is to come. So you see, one day there will be a new heaven, and one day there will be a new earth, and evil will fully and finally be dealt with. Nothing accursed is going to live in this new heaven and new earth. The rule and reign of God will be absolute. The adversary of God, the devil, is banished eternally into the lake of fire, and humanity's final enemy, death, is thrown into that place along with him. But this day of final judgment has not yet come. And Jesus' disciples could not live as if it had, and you and I cannot live as if it has. Until it comes, Jesus tells us, the field of this world will be a kingdom in conflict. It's going to be populated with both good and evil. It's going to be terrorized by the work of the devil. But it will not be destroyed by it. In fact, it will prevail in the end. Until then, Jesus wants us, Jesus wants his disciples to know a few things. 
One of those things is that in this world, even as a child of God, you're going to have some trouble. That's the message that Jesus gave his disciples shortly before his crucifixion, right? John chapter 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, even as a child of God, you will have trouble. We might even say, in this world, because you are a child of God, you will have trouble. Many of us have already figured this out the hard way. Being a Christian does not uh, exempt us from trials. It, uh, it does not exempt us from hardships. Any careful reading of the Bible will tell us that. Anybody who tells you that becoming a Christian uh, puts you on easy street is not telling you the truth. Jesus never said such a thing. God's people will suffer in this world along with everybody else. In fact, being a Christian is not a guarantee against trouble, and neither does being active in a church full of Christians put one outside the reach of the devil's schemes. It wasn't that long ago that we spent a good amount of time in the little epistle of Jude. Jude is an epistle written to encourage believers to contend for the faith. The reason Jude has to tell them to contend for the faith is because their congregation has been infiltrated by what? They had to be aware of what? Gracious sakes alive, I hope you know this. We spent a lot of time in this tiny little book, and we went week after week after week on this same theme, that we must be aware of false teachers in the church. These false teachers, in the fourth verse of Jude, he writes, crept in unnoticed. Crept in unnoticed. People who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, he said, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So by Jew's description of these people, they are not the kind of folks that you want to be sitting beside at the potluck, are they? But here's the thing. They're not that easy to spot. It isn't readily apparent that they're hooligans, that they're troublemakers that they're false teachers. If it were, how could they creep in unnoticed? Jesus said in Matthew 7:15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 20, he's writing to the elders at the church at Ephesus. He warns them about these sorts of people, and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Neither Jude nor Jesus no, Paul are describing Christians acting badly. Sometimes Christians do act badly, but that's not what's going on here. They are talking about non-believers who look and talk for the most part like Christians and have crept in, have come to the Christians in order to do them harm. The field, which in this parable is the world, includes the church. The sons of the evil one will be sprinkled among the sons of God. So having been warned then, we should not be surprised by this. We should not be taken aback by it when it happens. And secondly, we should be on our guard for it. Elders in particular, I just read that passage from Acts 20. Elders in particular have a duty to protect the sheep. 
And if I might switch metaphors here just a little bit, elders have a duty to not let the fox into the hen house. That's the job of elders in particular. One of the ways that we do that at United Baptist Church, one of the ways that we ensure that the fox doesn't get into the hen house is by getting to know people through the membership process. A new member's class. Helping people to understand what we believe and why we believe it. Making sure that people agree with our statement of faith. Making sure they're willing to live up to the covenant obligations that we make to one another. Making sure we know people and they know us. Are you saved? Yes. Are you sure? How do you know? What gifts do you have? And how do you plan to use them for God's glory in this church in Ellsworth, Maine? Back to the first point. As Christians, we will have trouble. The reason is that we are children of God. And as children of God, we have a real enemy. You see, when you and I became a child of God, God's enemy became our enemy. And that's where a lot of the trouble in life comes from. It comes from the devil. It comes from the devil and his work. His job is to sow discord. His job is to sow strife, right? Peter uh, calls him a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he may. The Apostle John says that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Jesus says that he is a liar and the father of lies and that his intent is to kill and to steal and to destroy. The evil one lives and loves to sabotage the work of God in the people of God, in the church of God. He's a real enemy. And he has many recruits. He has lots of minions they are sons of the evil one. They are the bad seeds in the parable. They help him on his wicked mission. They make life hard. They oppose what is good. Now the presence of this enemy in our world, in our lives, the consequences of his dastardly work round about us can lead us to despair if we are not careful. It's why we need scriptures like Psalm 37 which tells us repeatedly, do not fret because of evildoers. Don't fret. Don't worry because of evildoers. And Psalm 73, worth a read, where the psalmist laments over the prosperity of the wicked. And he's starting to become envious of them. And they have it so easy, he thinks, and I have it so hard. And, and why have I kept myself pure? And why have I kept my hands clean? Have, have I been godly in vain? Well, these people, I see them, and they're, they're prosperous, and they live in the lap of luxury, and they, they don't grieve things the way that I do, and they have a life of ease. The psalmist in Psalm 73 is saying, I almost slipped into this. I almost fell into this. I almost made a shipwreck of my faith over this because I was beginning to get envious of, the, of these people until, if you read verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I went into this consecrated place with God. We could probably say, until I went in to truly worship God. And when I did that, and when I got quiet before God, and when I brought God my heart's cry, he said, I discerned their end. In the presence of God, the psalmist says, I understand, uh, I understood, the NIV puts it this way, their final destiny. Sometimes knowing the end of a thing helps us endure in the middle of it. And so in the parable of the weeds, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the end. He uses the imagery of the harvest. 
Harvest is a word in the Bible that is often used as a metaphor for judgment. The wheat and the weeds, the evil and the good, they've been allowed to grow together. But then comes the harvest, and the angels get to work reaping. At that time, the good crop, the sons of the kingdom of heaven, will be gathered into the barn of the farmer. Now, the Bible has lots of interesting ways to describe eternity in the presence of God. How many of you have ever thought about being gathered into the barn of the farmer? That's what's being said here. That's, that's, that's the imagery that we have of our being gathered together into God's barn. What joy must that barn full of wheat have brought to the farmer. The, the act of terrorism that was perpetrated by his enemy did not produce the crop failure that the enemy wanted it to. You see, the sin that was sowed by Satan in the Garden of Eden the evil that's sown by the sons of the evil one throughout the history of the world has not, will not, thwart the purpose of God. Will not destroy the children of God. Jesus tells us that He is the one who's building His church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So heaven rejoices. We heard a little while ago when the lost is found Heaven rejoices when the saved of God are gathered to live forever in an unspoiled eternity. The good crop is brought into the barn and the weeds. Two words describe these weeds. Words that are graphic, words that are powerful. The weeds are bound. They were permitted to live at one point, but now they're no longer free to do their damage. They are bound and then they are burned. They are thrown into a fiery furnace. And we get the impression as we read the end of the parable that Jesus is not just talking about some unruly plants in a farmer's stove, but an eternal hell and the people who will go there. You see, the sons of the evil one have an everlasting reservation in that place where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It may be difficult to discern and separate the wheat from the weeds in this life. It may be hard to tell the righteous from the unrighteous. But Jesus assures us this separation will be no trouble for the angels in the age to come. In Matthew 13, Jesus uses the imagery of wheat and weeds. Later in the same chapter, if you look ahead to verses 47 and 49, Jesus teaches the same thing with another familiar image. This time it would be the imagery of fishing. I'm going to read this to you. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Later still in Matthew, Matthew chapter 25 this time, Jesus returns to the farm for his imagery. Uh, imagery of separation that's going to take place at the end of the age when he says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. And all the angels with him. 
He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. My friends, the Bible is pretty clear in its teaching on what's going to happen at the end of the age. You may or may not like what you hear. You may or may not believe what it says. But it's not unclear. Separation of peoples will occur. Those who belong to God are going to go to Him. And those who do not will go to hell. And you do not want to spend eternity in hell. And you do not have to. If you will respond right now to the invitation of the Holy Spirit to you to enter into a relationship with the living God. The Bible says in Acts 2, verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It also says in Romans chapter 10, and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. To the unsaved, the parable of the weeds is a warning. Hell is reserved for the God. Hell is real, and hell is reserved for the godless. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to become a child of God. I think this is why Jesus included in this parable that challenge. He who has ears, let him hear. Today, if you would hear His voice, don't harden your hearts, because hardening your heart to God may have eternal consequences. So to the unsaved, this parable, the parable of the weeds, is a warning. And to the saved, the parable of the weeds is an exhortation. It is an exhortation, dear ones, to take heart. You must know in advance that the life of following Jesus is not going to be weed-free. Evil will be manifest, but it will not win the day. Expect things to be hard. Expect also that God and His children will prevail. As Jesus said, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. There's an old song that seems to fit pretty well, I think both with our parable's message, and also with the times that we are living in today. So we'll close with these lyrics, and you might recognize them. Trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways God would lead us to that blessed promised land. But He guides us with His eye and will follow till we die, for we'll understand it better by and by. By and by, when the morning comes, when the saints of God are gathered home, We'll tell the story of how we've overcome. And we'll understand it better by and by.